I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the Gospels as we read chronologically through the New Testament. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Today we'll be reading Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Then we'll be skipping down to Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 17. Mark chapter 1 beginning with verse 40 down through chapter 2 verse 22. And finally, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 39. So here's where we are in Jesus' ministry. He's still in Galilee ministering, a trip which began, by the way, back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, and Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Also, John chapter 4, verses 43 to 45. We're still between Jesus' first and second Passover feast during his ministry. Jesus is ministering in Capernaum, which we'll see in a few moments. And the tax collector, Levi, becomes Matthew and follows Jesus as a disciple. All of that's in today's reading. In our first section of Scripture today, a man is healed of leprosy. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, and Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now over to Mark's account. In Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 40. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him, and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Now Luke's account in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. 
Well, the setting for this occasion is somewhere in Galilee. Leprosy, of course, was the dreaded disease of Bible times in both the Old and New Testaments. The Law of Moses has much to say about the procedures for dealing with a person who has leprosy. He was considered unclean and placed away from the general populace in isolation. Furthermore, you you couldn't just walk back into society one day and say, Okay, I'm all well now. Now, you had to be declared clean and all well now by the priest. This procedure is, by the way, found in detail in Leviticus chapter 13 and continues into Leviticus chapter 14. After Jesus heals the leper, he tells him not to tell anyone how he was healed, but it says uh, that he's to rather show himself to the priest for the necessary clean bill of health. Well, did he obey? Well, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 45. It says, However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Now, in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, we see the impact on Jesus' ministry as a result of this leper's healing. It says there, However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Now we'll see in the next verse in Luke chapter 5, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now we have another healing in the next section of Scripture, which is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and Luke chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said with themselves, This man blasphemies. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic man, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Now over to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic man who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic man, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. 
Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Now Luke's account over in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Well, at this point in time, Jesus is up in northern Israel in Capernaum on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. While preaching in a house, people continued to gather around until some showed up with a paralytic man. It was too crowded to get him in. So they lowered him through the roof. Well, no problem so far. Well, until Jesus tells the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven you. The religion police, Pharisees and scribes, they were there, and that raises a ruckus among the Jewish scribes, who were the official scholars. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. Of course, they're simply looking for something to use against Jesus anyway, since he'd already made it clear that he has no respect for the corrupt Jewish leadership of that day. It was problematic for them that Jesus had the ability to heal the sick in the first place. But to forgive sins was way over the line as far as they were concerned. Now here's some insight on this situation. There's no suggestion here that all sickness is as a result of sin. However, as God in the flesh, Christ was able to perceive that this man's illness was indeed as the result of sin. So he also perceived that this paralytic man was repentant. Therefore, it was appropriate for Jesus to forgive this man's sins. Meantime, the scribes are looking for a way to entrap Jesus. They would like to have had direct evidence that he proclaimed himself to be God. They bade him to make that declaration in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, when they ask, Who can forgive sins but God alone? However, all they can get are implications as he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's a reference used by David and Ezekiel in a human context. But, uh, by the way, David and Ezekiel were not the only ones to use the phrase. It was also used by Daniel to refer to the Messiah, and we find that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read those two verses to you. 
I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So without directly saying it, Jesus is assuming the title of Messiah. Or is he? Now, the title Son of Man wasn't a reference to that same Messianic context when Ezekiel used it, where that prophet used it 93 times in reference to himself. Well, you can see how Jesus gave these religious professionals fits. Incidentally, not long before this incident, Jesus had declared that he himself was the Messiah while in a synagogue in Nazareth. That occasion is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And that took place in Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. Capernaum, where this incident takes place, is about 30 miles by roads from Nazareth. That's a considerable distance in the day when people walked where they went. It's quite likely that word from Nazareth had not trickled over to Capernaum about Jesus' professed identity at this point in time. In the next section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Mark 2, 14 through 17, and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, the Jews here seek creative ways to entrap Jesus. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now over to Mark chapter 2, same account, beginning with verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Luke's account in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's only natural that Jews hated tax collectors. They were representatives of the Roman government assigned to take their money. (laughs) Still true today, I guess. These tax gatherers are called publicans in the King James Version. Jews really, really despise the Roman-appointed tax collectors, people like Levi. He was a Jew, and he had a Jewish name, but worked for the government. It really grated on the Jews that Jesus would go have supper with, with Levi and with his friends, fellow tax collectors. Uh, but get this, Levi becomes one of the apostles of Jesus, and his name is changed to Matthew. Now, Matthew, by the way, is the English transliteration of the Greek transliteration for the Hebrew name Mattathiah. That's, by the way, the name of four men mentioned in the Old Testament. Furthermore, he goes on to write the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's own gospel simply refers to the occasion as a meal, as does Mark. Both Matthew and Mark refer to the questionable guest as many tax collectors and sinners. Luke, however, identifies this occasion as a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them, according to Luke. Luke wants us to understand the magnitude of the problem here, as seen by these Jewish leaders. Perhaps this is a going-out-of-business bash that Matthew throws. As a practice, Pharisees had no contact with these sinners, and they question why Jesus chooses to do so. Jesus replies that ministering to sinners, well, that's why he came. The Pharisees see this as a great opportunity to point out the shortcomings of Jesus to a whole lot of people. We'll see this, by the way, in the verses that follow. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Matthew points out that Jesus quoted Hosea 6, 6 in his reply to the Pharisees when he says to them, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In that chapter of Hosea, Israel there is being rebuked for rejecting the counsel of God. Now you can see the implications of that quotation and the comment by Jesus. It's no wonder the Jews were infuriated. Incidentally, Jesus quoted Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to a different group of Pharisees on a later occasion over in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. In the next section, we have a question that gets answered. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, and Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39 deal with this subject. First, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined." But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now Mark 2, beginning with verse 18, records it like this. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. 
Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And finally, Luke records it like this, beginning in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours, eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now, in Luke's account, we see that this conversation is taking place at Matthew's house on the occasion of I ain't collecting taxes anymore party. That's significant inasmuch as the big old banquet tables are stacked with food. Remember, it was a great feast. So with all this eating going on, how about a question regarding the indulgences of the occasion? Here's the question. Why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Matthew and Mark both tell us that some of the disciples of John the Baptist participate with the Pharisees in this inquiry. I just wonder if the Pharisees had been over talking to John's disciples, trying to get them riled up. As far as Scripture is concerned, in the Old Testament, the Jews only fasted on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 to 31, and Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 to 32. Oh, and Numbers 29, 7 also. Later on, when they returned from Babylonian exile, four other annual feasts were observed by Jews. We see that in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, and eight, chapter 8, verse 19. Now, we see from Luke chapter 18, verse 12, that some of the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Don't know why. As far as John the Baptist's disciples, maybe they were fasting because he was in prison at the time. Or maybe they were fasting because they saw the Messianic age at hand. We don't really know that either. But in both cases, fasting was a sure sign of those times that you were serious about your religion. If you want a complete overview regarding fasting, you can look at my commentary on Isaiah chapter 58, and I deal with it there. So here's the question asked of Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? The answer comes in the form of an analogy. When the bridegroom is present at the wedding feast, there is nothing to fast about. Everybody eats heartily. However, when the bridegroom is gone, then it will be appropriate to fast. Was he talking about his crucifixion here? Well, perhaps so. But one thing's for certain, Jesus implies 
that the Pharisees and John's disciples fast in anticipation of an event as in the coming of the Messiah. Since Jesus is that Messiah, his disciples, well, they don't have a need to fast. Incidentally, John the Baptist is in prison at this point in time and has been since Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And he remains in prison until he's beheaded in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12, where we're told about it. Perhaps another reason why his disciples were fasting. Now, what's this new wine old bottle analogy about? Well, let's look at the circumstances and conversation around Jesus' comments, and let's see if we can perceive his meaning. The Pharisees were the leading religionists in Palestine in that day. They fully anticipated that anyone aspiring to Messiahship would be working with them. Now, here they are at it again. However, criticizing every move that Jesus makes, who his friends are, with whom he eats, the very fact that he eats it all. So to explain to them where they fit into the leadership scheme of the coming kingdom, Jesus uses the wine bottle and the cloth garment analogies. So let's fit the components into these two analogies. The new wine is the equivalent of the messianic kingdom. The old bottles would be the equivalent of the current corrupt leadership in Palestine. The new cloth would be the messianic kingdom. The old garment would be the current corrupt leadership in the Palestine area. So here's the bottom line subtly stated. Jesus is telling these Pharisees that they won't be a part of the leadership team in the messianic kingdom think they're starting to get the picture. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.